Hello, I'm Alistair. And I'm Andrew. Welcome to Season 11, Episode 1 of Seen From Above, an informal podcast about the cool things happening in Earth observation. Check out seenfromabove.org for the podcast archive and show notes. Follow the show on Twitter via at EOSeenFrom and using the hashtag SeenFromAbove. In this episode, we talk about trees. Okay, let's do the news. Uh, 8th of September 2021. I think I'm most interested still today with the investor presentation given. So planet, black sky, Cytologic is particularly interesting as well. And, and they are interesting because a lot of these companies are now bringing themselves into hiring previous experienced industry players within the non-space market. So that's the first thing of interest to me. So they're making themselves more credible and bringing in people from um, external companies that have been involved in sort of startups that have transitioned to more, more public. So is that technical people or business people that you... A bit of both. I, I generally more business people, but it, I think it's to add credibility to the company or the companies. Um, and it's also interesting how these companies are pitching themselves. Now, we just don't have enough time to sort of break down these uh, individual um, <laughs> presentations. But for so long, it's been so difficult to get the financials and so difficult to get the the overall or overarching business information out of companies such as Planet and Satellogic that all of a sudden you'll hit bang with this huge deluge of, of information. And it is, I think I just describe it as a bit of a gold mine. And often when you come to things like risk factors, this is kind of like a, a project manager's sort of dream in the sense that it sort of highlights all these different um, risks, okay, related to financing and, and launching satellites and stuff, which is kind of interesting. But I may be wrong, but I see no um, mention of Clyde's Neo or the Worldview Legion um, satellites in here. And I would have thought that would be a serious risk factor if I was um, considering uh, as an investor into, into these companies. So that was the first thing that sort of stood out for me. The other thing is how much they're all leaning so heavily on open source software and technology. And, you know, the, you know unsurprisingly, things like COG and um, Stack have come out of, of, of the sort of startup sphere to make imagery more accessible and an absolutely critical component. And the final thing really to mention in this sort of very brief pricey is to say that a lot of them are now pitching themselves as data companies. It'll be interesting to see how this all pans out because there's a lot of money swilling around. And I guess in part, that's because of the climate crisis. In part, it's because of trying to bounce back out of COVID. And in part, it's because space is a pretty cool thing to be involved with. And it seems like the technology side of space has become sufficiently advanced that now you can have all of this investment-led commercialization of the space sector. But I still... I'm a little nervous to really understand what the size of the EO market is going to be. Earth observation data in particular has a massive role to play. But there are some big gambles going on here, I think, unless the gamble is you get in with an early company and a bit like Amazon, they basically eat up the market and the first first people into that sphere, that sector, they win. First to market is often hardest to dislodge. What is interesting, though, with the exception of Black Sky, I think, the two decks, Satellogic and Planet, are peppered with beautiful-looking images. Right. Yeah. And yet they're pitching as data companies. It's not a criticism at all. 
I would bookmark these and, and download these investor presentations because there's so much in there. Cool. So um, I want to just highlight two GitHub repos. Three. The first one has actually been highlighted to us by a listener. So that was cool. If you have any news, do get in touch. But Will Ray sent us the news that there have been updates to stack tools, including support around Sentinel-1 GRD. But it's good to see that the GRD products are, are getting some love in there as well. And then the other one is that uh, it's another radar-related one, and ISI have released a series of tools called IceCube, and that's basically for creating time series data cubes using ISI SAR data imagery, and that can then be fed into supervised machine learning and that sort of thing. So there's a few things in there that's interesting. I'm guessing you'd be quite interested in the data cubes there. Yeah, interesting that that ISI one. Yeah, no, that, that's really cool. And I, I definitely recommend that people go and have a look at Stack Tools Packages GitHub account. And there's a whole host of different things in there for using with Stack Tools for different data types. Really awesome. Okay, so I am the guy who wants to take things to a sort of more left field, a sideways step at the news to try and sort of see things from uh, not within our containerized world. I've been very interested for a while now at the increasing use of Twitch. Twitch is uh, like a streaming service. Uh, YouTube has a sort of similar thing. I've always wondered if there was the opportunity to, to bring something like experts in, into platforms like this and use it as an interactive learning, but sort of career development tool. So more, more like hosted by somebody and then everybody interacts. Okay. And this summer, I came across this thing called Hashtag Sliced. Um, it's run predominantly on Nick Wan's channel, so Nick Wan underscore Data Sci. And they ran this competition over the course of um, a series of weeks where they got people in who were not beginners and, and probably more than intermediate programmers and basically gave them a sample data set and said, you know, these are the challenges go for it. Best correlation wins kind of thing. The opportunity here in the data science community and the earth observation community is that look, anecdotally, lots of people who competed in these competitions are in the shop window for jobs and they're, they're getting employment based on interacting in these in this new way. When I checked out a minute ago, literally 18 hours ago on recording this podcast, so probably, you know, five or six days um, from, from release of this uh, podcast yeah. was the last one he did was basically four hours of cartography with OpenStreetMap. And this is a non-geospatial guy. Absolutely fascinating. Yeah, that sounds really cool. I must admit, I hadn't heard of hashtag sliced. So my final bit of news is from towardsdatascience.com. And it's a, a post uh, called Reduce Geotiff Disk Space Usage with Python. If you've been using Geotiff, data, then there might be a few hints and tips in here that would be useful, but you probably are already doing a lot of this. But it's basically a blog post about good practice for exporting large raster files, so the types of data that we use all the time. And it's just a nice little idea around making sure that you have correct data types and also have things like the correct type of compression and that you're using it at the right time, the right place. So yeah, it's, it's nothing that I'm guessing the majority of 
listeners haven't already been playing around with, but it's it's good to always go back and make sure that the things you're doing are sort of best practice. I hadn't heard of this library before, PyRSGIS. So I'm just checking it out, and you're right, I don't think I've come across it either. And I think that's where we should leave the news. Okay, so there's a lot of interesting things happening in the forest biomass space, no pun intended, uh, at the moment. And um, we're very lucky to have with us Ed Mitchard, uh, who's going to talk about trees and forests and data and all sorts of things like that. So, Ed, thanks very much for coming on to the podcast. Uh, could you just quickly introduce yourself? Thanks so much for having me. It's delighted to be part of this. Uh, sure. So I'm a professor at the University of Edinburgh, where I work on kind of global change mapping in general and um, I also started a company three years ago with one of my colleagues there uh, called Space Intelligence. So I'm one of the co-founders of that. Oh, cool. Maybe we start talking about forest biomass. Can you just sort of tell our listeners what is forest biomass and, and how does space help quantify it? And indeed, why are we interested in quantifying it? Sure. So forests cover about a third of the land surface. And I'm sure all your listeners are well aware that they come in a wide variety of shapes and, and sizes. Uh, but fundamentally, from a, a simple look from a satellite data, they all kind of look dark green. And yeah, they're kind of a homogeneous cloud of green. But in fact, they're, they're massively different in their biodiversity and their characteristics, but critically, the amount of carbon they contain. Um, so we want to be able to, to map that, that massive carbon store forests, including their soil, hold far more carbon than is in our atmosphere. So it's really important that we we know what's coming in and out of that pool, and we're able to track that through time. Um, so I particularly work on tropical forests. They're losing a lot of carbon because we continue to cut them down. We're cutting them down at the highest rate we've ever done. But also those forests are saving us a bit. So the bits we haven't cut down are every year sucking in more carbon from the atmosphere than they're respiring. Um, so we want to kind of look at the balance of those two processes check that's still going the right way and help support projects that want to prevent deforestation or restore uh, forests in areas where there, there used to be forests and we've, we've cut them down. So I'm going to ask the obvious question, which is if you're looking at tropical forests, don't all the clouds get in the way? Yeah, it's a very good question. <laughs> yes. Even when you don't have the clouds in the way, with optical satellite data, you're only seeing the very top of the green layer of leaves at the top. So even seeing them with optical satellite data, you're maybe not getting that much useful information. But yes, clouds are in the way all the time. Uh, we particularly work, well, some places like Indonesia and West Central Africa, you almost never get a cloud-free image. It's a work of many years kind of compositing to get a, a cloud-free image for, from combining Landsat and Sentinel-2, for example. Yeah, it's, it's a kind of a real nasty problem in that the clouds tend to only burn away in the afternoon. And so you'll know most satellites go over between, say, 10 and 11 a.m. And it's just always cloudy <laughs> in some bits of the world at that kind of time of day. Anyway, yes, you need the third dimension, really, to look at biomass. You need the, the height of the trees or something about the volume. So a lot of the work in mapping the carbon stored in forests is about using synthetic aperture radar data and using LIDAR data. There's been particular excitement recently because there's been two LIDAR satellites launched. Uh, we've had a decade from about 2010 to 2020 where there was no LIDAR satellites, despite that we had one in the 2000s, um, ISAT glass. We then had nothing for 10 years and now we have two. We have ISAT 2 and JEDI, uh, both NASA instruments, uh, which is great because suddenly we have spaceborne LIDAR again. And also there's an increasing amount of airborne LIDAR being collected from planes and increasingly from drones, which is great. So yeah, LIDAR and radar together um, can map forest biomass. And we're, we're getting more and more LIDAR data, which is great. 
Um, of course, LiDAR data also has that cloud cover problem you mentioned. So we're very used to dealing with data as imagery. What sort of formats are the, the LiDAR data coming in? Are they images as well? Yeah, LiDAR data is, is non-trivial to deal with from space. It's because it's normally a a sensor that's basically looking down on a long orbit and you get these little distributed footprints and uh, within each of those footprints you have a waveform and that's that's covering the case of jedi maybe a 25 meter kind of almost circle and it tells you something about that but the way the files are working currently at least is you have to download a load of orbits most of which are covering a quarter of the globe each time to deal with your tiny study area so <laughs> there is a high barrier to entry uh, in terms of dealing with terabytes of data and yeah you're not going to deal with it with downloading it to your computer and sorting it, everything has to be cloud-based. And we've had to write quite a lot of Python scripts and things yeah. just to just to begin to interrogate the data. It's a bit frustrating. I think that will change quite quickly over the next couple of years. These LiDAR satellites are free and open data. So it's going to end up on Google Earth Engine and things, but that hasn't happened yeah. yet. But yeah, LiDAR is non-trivial and the other kind of third dimension stuff is radar, which it's difficult to get all the information out of radar without processing the raw data yourself, which again adds a lot of headaches it, it comes as a strip doesn't it the, the jedi from for memory I, i'm looking at the, the data yeah so it's these long single orbit files so it's basically all the shots that it collected on that bit of the orbit the jedi sits on the international space station so an orbit kind of wiggles up and down the the world um i'm i live in scotland we don't actually even get any data in scotland it doesn't come this far north oh really yeah, you get one of these wiggly um kind of orbits uh, it goes up to about 45 degrees north, something like that, I think. You get one of these wiggly orbits and you have to collect lots of those because every time they cross your study area and then you filter out all the ones that are cloudy and so on, eventually get a, a set of points within your study area um, that you can then do something with. But they're still distributed points, giving you something about tree height or canopy cover that you then have to do another set of steps to make, make biomass from those ideally based on actual field data or more continuous coverage LIDAR data from the area. So, so the instrument was sort of like strapped on, well, strapped on is probably not the right term, is it? But <laughs> it bolted on by astronauts, pretty much. There were some drills involved. Yeah. Yeah. So basically attached to the space station, and, but, not, but not launched. Is, is there a reason for that? Yeah. So these LIDARs involve pretty massive power requirements. Right. So there's these science pods on the space station that make it easy to launch and ISAT-2 is a, its own satellite. But yeah, it was seen as a cheaper way of, of getting Jedi operational was to put on the space station. Um, it does have its issues, but because um, it's not the most stable platform. I mean, it did a loop-the-loop the other day, right? Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, it moves around for reasons you wouldn't necessarily want it to. Uh, <laughs> is it just generally NASA that are interested in the, these sort of missions then? JAXA have just, well, have funded for a while an instrument called MOLI, which is quite similar to JEDI, a vegetation LIDAR, um, but it needs a slot on the space station for a similar reason, and that hasn't uh, happened yet. So I'm hoping that's be launched soon. Uh, it might be going into JEDI's slot, so unfortunately we won't have two operating at once. Oh, right, okay. I mean, this is sort of like quite fascinating, isn't it, in the sense that the public's perception of the space station is just, you know, we all get very proud when our astronaut goes up there and floats around and releases a bit of water and does that, that kind of outreach stuff. There's a lot of real science that happens yeah. in the space station, genuinely. And yes, I think people often struggle to struggle to understand that. And then you get people within their own field saying the space station is really important. So yeah, for me, it's a couple of remote sensing instruments that have gone up on it. But for uh, someone dealing with extreme environments, it's it's the opportunity to put bacteria on the outside of it or for people doing with human physiology, it, it tests things differently. So I think it has had real value, whether that's 
proportional to the taxpayer cost. I, I don't know if it is a, a very useful thing as scientists. Yeah. Will it? Do you know if the instrument will, like the Jedi instrument, will, will stay there for a period of years? I hope so. I mean, it's had an extension. It was only meant to be there for, for two years. Oh, really? Um, these LIDARs do degrade. So ISAT got less and less good, if you like, and uh, only lasted eight years or so. I wouldn't expect Jedi to last. I don't want to put a timeline on a NASA instrument, but <laughs> I'd be surprised if it was still going in five or six years. It'd be great if it was. Yeah. Okay, interesting. Because, I mean, I was going to say to you, slightly disingenuously, forestry, isn't it already done? And that was your cue to say, oh, no, <laughs> it's not. Definitely not. We know where the trees are, as in we know where forest is and isn't. We have very good ability to map deforestation. There's automatic yeah. products. Global Forest Watch has been very widely used. We know there's almost no public data giving any information about that forest, even what forest types they are, let alone the amount of carbon in them. There are some carbon maps produced. I've been involved in a few of them, but they're quite coarse resolution and they typically have errors of up to, well, about plus or minus 50% on an individual area. So they're useful for like saying there's this much carbon in DRC or something in Democratic Republic of Congo. You can kind of sum over a load of pixels. But they've got no ability to track the subtle changes that we know are happening, or even not that subtle changes. You, you can't do this mapping again five years later and say these pixels are growing and these pixels are losing carbon due to degradation. Because when you difference two maps, you're just seeing the error in two maps. So a lot of my work's about trying to do better change detection for biomass. So can we see someone removing 20% of the biomass for degradation or can we see the regrowth? So I have an experiment funded by the European Union uh, called FODEX, Tropical Forest Degradation Experiment, where we're working in logging concessions in Peru and Gabon, which are very different types of forest. Um, and we're taking out trees, cutting down trees within forest plots. Feels very odd to do as a scientist. Um, but we're scanning them before and after with terrestrial laser scanning. So we know exactly what the trees are before and afterwards, exactly how much carbon has been removed and hoping to use those to calibrate much better biomass change maps. So our, our kind of data there is the change in carbon from time one to time two, rather than trying to make a continuous map at both time points. Um, we haven't got results from that yet, but we're uh, hopeful that some of the algorithms that will come out of that will let us make uh, better maps of these changes. But yeah, it definitely hasn't been done. Um, there's a lot of interest in kind of forestry companies in general. Um, timber prices have gone crazy the last few years. And suddenly you get these people who've invested in forestry and you just kind of leave trees to it often and they don't know how much the trees are worth because you've just you haven't gone back to measure the trees and you can send a field team in but that might be quite expensive i mean even in scotland let alone in the middle of canada or somewhere um, or you can try and monitor it from space there's a lot of interest in companies looking into that and you want to know you want to harvest exactly the right time if you have a commercial timber plantation i think there's a growing role for satellite data in helping people kind of plan and manage that harvesting process that's absolutely incredible i mean I, so quite often i talk with clients and and their main concerns are things like death by a thousand cuts so as you acquire an image and then you compare it to the next image it, the change is so slight that you don't see it and then you know you, you're looking for a trend over over time but in terms of relating it to carbon it does feel from a consulting point of view that that's the kind of holy grail that you're trying to tie it into some direct, accountable, specific measure, rather than this kind of anecdotal, my land size is this, it's full of coniferous trees, it has this much carbon. I mean, there'll definitely be scientific products produced from Jedi, that's the point of the, the instruments. You kind of need a company or a group that can deal with 
big data sets and, and what you need is yeah, advanced machine learning and an ability to deal with lots of other types of satellite data to kind of extrapolate these dots into a, a continuous map. I hate this kind of making this beautiful landscape we have into these discrete classes, which we do so much in remote sensing, and you force everything to be a change from one state to another state, right, and yeah. loads of things yeah. are gradual. So I love continuous maps, yeah, continuous map of canopy cover or biomass. You can see those subtle changes and your errors of plus or minus 5%, that's okay, you can kind of incorporate that. Whereas, yeah, it's maddening to have to discretize all these things that are continuous. I guess it's a deforestation, forest to non-forest is, is that kind of thing. So that's why we succeeded. But forest degradation or regrowth is, is much harder for that reason. Is there a vertical resolution that is required from instruments like um, JEDI? Because probably about five or six years ago now, I was trying to help someone looking at biomass of sugarcane. Is that something that Jedi could help with or is it set up specifically for forests? Jedi is specifically for forests. It has quite a long, getting quite technical, it has quite a long beam length. So it can't resolve things less than about two meters at kind right. of the bottom or the top. So sugarcane is is never going to be resolved by yeah. Jedi. But ISAT 2, uh, which is a quite different type of instrument, which is really designed for looking at changes in ice height of centimeter kind of scale. That probably could do sugarcane monitoring, okay. though it's a photon counting LIDAR, which causes other issues. But yeah, so there's there's types of LIDAR data that could do that. Um, but it's not all about LIDAR data. So there's various radar data sets that can also help with this. Um, so TandemX is two X-band SAR satellites run by DLR a few hundred meters apart, collecting simultaneous data, can theoretically give very accurate digital surface models that you could, if you could have the budgets to, to pay for it, you could look at those <laughs> through time <laughs> um, and see changes. And not helping with your sugarcane example again, we're very excited about a European Space Agency funded satellite called Biomass, uh, which should be launched next year with any luck, uh, which okay. is a 500 million euro satellite, so a big thing. And it's a P-band radar, so the longest wavelength radar we've ever had in orbit. So it's a wavelength of about 60 centimeters, and it should be able to uh, measure uh, biomass kind of directly by measuring the volume of, the volume of wood in a a volume of forest area. Um, so we do this currently using Alos Pulsar, which is an L-band satellite, but it kind of saturates before we get into proper tall forests. It's great in savannah and woodland. Okay. So is that going to be open data, the biomass? It'll be free and open data, yes. And there'll be a product, a higher level product called biomass. So they're not even going to, they're going to do the processing beyond the, the raw radar data. Oh, interesting. Okay. So that'll be very widely used. However, it's a it's not going to solve the kind of forest component of climate change unfortunately um, because it's a one-off mission it will only have fuel for four or so years so it will appear and we should take full advantage of it um, and then it will disappear again. Um, when Andrew and I were talking to Sisters of SAR I think earlier mm -hmm. this year or maybe late last year God, time has become very strange at the moment they mentioned NISAR would you be able to say a little bit about NISAR and maybe where that sits within some of the other sensors that you've just mentioned? Sure. So it's an L-band radar. So exactly like Alos Pulsar, which I just mentioned, that's a Japanese L-band radar satellite that well, has been kind of three incarnations of it. We've had that type of data from the mid-90s to, to present, which has been fantastic. Um, JAXA have released a reasonable amount of that data, but fundamentally it's not been free and open. Uh, NISAR will be. It's a NASA mission. It's their first uh, L-band satellite, and it will be free and open data. It will collect a much larger volume. So suddenly we'll have access to loads of high quality L-band radar data, which is uh, very exciting. 
L-band is useful for monitoring forests. It's probably not useful for mapping biomass of higher biomass forests. Because we've got Sentinel-1, we've got loads of C-band data. We're going to have L-band as well, so a longer wavelength. We're going to have two colors, if you like. It's not quite the same as having full color data, but for every problem from agriculture onwards, suddenly you've got two types of, two wavelengths of SAR. That should really help us in terms of understanding what's going on. Um, so I'm excited about it just from a land cover mapping point of view. I always get massively blown away by how SAR has really come of age recently and all the various different things it can do. It's a hugely exciting time to be a, a SAR scientist. I'd urge people to get trained up in how to use these data because there's going to be more and more of it. There's these free and open satellites I've been talking about from the big satellites from the space agencies, but lots of small companies have sprung up and managed to convince venture capitalists to give them uh, lots of money. It's got Capella Space and Umbra and others I've yeah. probably forgotten who are launching these constellations of small X-band satellites um, and just going to be fantastic. I've used some ISI data, uh, which is a Finnish company that has done this. And it's it's really nice having small satellites producing high quality, high resolution SAR data that can, can see through clouds. With Earth Engine, is it a blessing and a curse in the sense that if people are doing a PhD and using 10,000 images or whatever it may be and processing on, on Google's infrastructure and then finishing their research, and then going into the workplace and then not having access to, to this level of compute. I mean, there's all sorts of things we could say, you know, Google can turn it off. They're pushing the edge because there's planetary computer, there's open data cube and all this kind of stuff. I wonder sometimes if we're setting ourselves up for this potential fall that we're giving the, the new entrants to the field all the toys and then they're going into the workplace and being incredibly restricted as what they do. I wonder what you think about that. Yeah, I share all your concerns. I think Google Earth Engine is an amazing gift that Google has given to our community. It's done some real good for the world, I think. Um, it's really yeah, enabled me to, to teach courses with undergraduates and let them do things over whole countries that we'd never have been able to do um, before. It's also been great during the pandemic because you don't need access to the powerful computers in a lab, to, which we used to have access to, to be able to do things. Um, but yes, I would never encourage a master's course or a PhD, let alone a PhD student, to do all their work in Google Earth Engine. It'd be hugely dangerous, not just from a, they can't use it later and they could turn it off, but from a, just understanding what's going on. It's a bit of a black box in many ways, and it kind of makes it too easy to produce things without really understanding what's behind that. There was an announcement the other day that they're, they're bringing SAR processed Sentinel-1 data within one and a half days or, or, or being acquired. It was 12 hours or something. 12, okay, I mean, incredible, yeah. isn't it? I find that sort of very encouraging because they're basically challenging everybody else to deliver it that quickly, which is which is the great thing about Earth Engine to me. I mean, you know, I, I think it kind of owns the academic sphere now. I mean, it would be very difficult to sort of lodge, dislodge it. And the fact that I could do a bit of work and send you the link and then you can just look at it. And, and yeah. that, that's just nuts in, 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 in our world. How would I put in a grant application? I don't know. So I was doing a global degradation map. How could I put in for supercomputer time to do the number crunching and downloading all the Landsat archive when Google Earth Engine exists. I, I couldn't possibly justify that spend of taxpayer money when we can spend Google's money because they've kindly given this, this thing out. So yeah, while it exists, it's very hard to, to do anything else with research. And I guess sort of building on the academic side. So your, your how, how does your, I was going to say, how does your life work? But that was a totally unfair <laughs> question. But you're, you're sort of involved in the university and then there's space intelligence. How, how does it all break down? Yeah, it's kind of two separate questions there. In terms of my life, I am far too busy. <laughs> I work a full-time job at the university and kind of dabble in bits at the company. But yeah, I don't have as many evenings and weekends as I would like. I guess that's quite common as an academic. 
in terms of the actual process, the university is really supportive of companies like this um, starting up in the ecosystem. Um, they have, they're part of a, what's called a city deal thing where UK government put a lot of money into the city of Edinburgh, particularly to try and grow um, data-driven innovation jobs. Yeah. So the, the company squ sits squarely within that. And we've well, created about eight coders working in Edinburgh doing this thing. So yeah, it kind of works within the university ecosystem. That's really interesting to know about the seed funding in for that, because it's been patently obvious that there's been a lot of activity up in Edinburgh, that there's all these spin-out companies. I mean, there's a real hub up there of people who are super excited about modern Earth observation. And so I hadn't realized that it was a strategic thing. And trying to become the space data capital of Europe. Um, right. That's the, okay. the aim. Um, seem to be doing a fairly good job with it so far, definitely creating a, a lot of interesting companies up there and obviously there's just a lot of network effects fundamentally lots of students want to go there phd students and master's students studying earth observation and data science and they want they like edinburgh it's a lovely city and want to have jobs there so it kind of all feeds back i think andrew and i have spoken before on the podcast about how the link between academia and the commercial world needs to be stronger and it seems like that's what you're sort of tentatively getting to here it seems like a, a nice model to be honest yeah, it's um, it's definitely working really well for me. I'm yeah, I'm really keen on having a closer link between academia and industry. So I also run a, a center for doctoral training called Sense, uh, Center for Environmental Science in Earth Observation, which is all about trying to train PhD students in this this widest field, so kind of satellite data and data science. Um, and all of those students spend three months in industry during their three-year, nine-month PhDs to try and make sure we we connect them. Ed, it's been a genuine pleasure talking to you and finding out about biomass mapping and uh, all the other things to do with sort of the ecosystem up in Edinburgh, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, thank you very much. Thanks so much. Really nice to meet you too. Maybe see you in real life at some point. You never know. Uh, we encourage you to drop us a line through Twitter using at EOSeenFrom, where you can find a vibrant community based around the podcast. Thanks for listening, and that's it for now. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Alistair. Spot? Spotty pie? Oh, hi. Podcast music is Cracker Jacks and Tin Whistles by Ocean Heights and is licensed under the Attribution Non-Commercial Creative Commons license. Available on freemusicarchive.org.